Okay, good evening, everybody. Special thank you, as always, to Isaac Romano, our captain of the Wednesday night. Thank you so much for everything. Thank you as well to Tor Anytime for sharing this class for those of you who are not here presently this evening. Topic this evening is Warrior, the legacy of Rev Chaim David Leibowitz. Now it's interesting in what they call the Chafetz Chaim circles, that's where I come from. Everyone knows the name Reb David, Reb David Leibowitz. If you go outside of those circles though, into the broader Torah community, it's a name that's not nearly as well known as Rav Aaron Cutler, Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky, Rav Hutner, Rav Ruderman, all from the same Hevra, all from the same group in the same yeshiva in Europe. But Rav David is not as well known in the broader Torah world. So I wanted to take this evening, Parshas Vyetse, and we're getting close to the yard site of Rav David. On the secular calendar, he passed away. It was Friday, December 5th, and they had the Leviah on Sunday, December 7th, 1941. Right, a day that lives in infamy. As they were coming back from the funeral, they heard about the bombing of Pearl Harbor. The, uh, the Hebrew date is the 15th of Kislev, so we're approaching the yard site. Wanted to share with you a few ideas, a few insights into the, uh, the legacy of Reb David. Obviously, he passed away many years ago, and everything we know about him is pretty much, it's all secondhand. A lot of it is from the Rosh Hashiva, his son who passed away in 2008, and uh, many uh, of his Talmidim, many of Reb David's own students who shared their own stories and their own insights into his life and into his legacy. Give with you just the, uh, a brief biographical sketch David was born in 1889. He was one of four children. He had a brother, Ramosha, he was very close with, but tragically, Ramosha passed away young. His father, Reb Zev, was actually the nephew of the Chafetz Chaim. So Reb David himself was the, the great nephew of the Chafetz Chaim. And when he was a teenager, a young teenager, he actually went to Radin in the Chafetz Chaim's yeshiva, and he would learn one-on-one -on -one with his great uncle. They spent from nine in the morning consistently until nine in the evening, maybe stopping for a coffee here and there, maybe, learning together, and Rav David was actually helpful in the creation of the Mishnah Bura, the last part of the Mishnah Bura. While in Radin, he became very close with Rev. Naftali Trupp, one of the Ge'one Hador, one of the great minds of the time. And a lot of his Derech Alimut, a lot of the methodology that he received in learning and how to decipher any piece of Gemara or Chazal, a lot of that he picked up from the great Rev. Naftali Trupp. When he was a little bit older, 18, 19 years old, he went from Radin to Slobodka. And Reb Naftali Trapp sent a message to Slavodka that Reb David, although he's only 19 years old, he's already a Sholem Belomdis, which means he was very well accomplished in his ability to learn. 
And now it's time for him to embrace your derech ha-Musr, your approach to Musr. Slobodka, we know, had a very unique, a unique school of Musr. In Slobodka, he became very close with the altar of Slobodka, Rav Nassim Svi Finkel, we've mentioned him many times in the past. He was the, the mastermind of the, of the yeshiva. And really together in that relationship, he became a very close disciple of the altar of Slobodka. He marries when he's 26 years old in 1915, Rabbits and And uh, soon afterwards, he takes over his father-in-law's position of being a Rav. So he was in Slobodka for about six years. He becomes a Rav of a small village in Europe. And then about five, six years later, he's called back to the Slobodka Yeshiva from the altar. The altar wants to start a new kolel, a high-level learning program. It was being run by the altar's son-in-law, Rav Isaac Sher. And they wanted David Leibowitz to be an integral part of getting it off the ground. In that kolel, you have some of the greatest Torah personalities that really changed the entire scene of America. Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky, Rav Ruderman, that's the yeshiva Ner Yisrael, Chaim Berlin, that's the yeshiva founded by Rav Yitzchak Hutner, Rav Aaron Cutler was part of that group, right, the, create, the creator of Lakewood. Pretty much the entire Torah scene we have here in America came from that small wooden building in Slobodka, and that was known as the Kolel Kovna, the Kovna Kolel. The uh, schedule was for the kolel that the Avrechim, the people, would learn for five years, and they would accept upon themselves to take one year and go to America and fundraise for the yeshiva. You always have to have money. Ein kemach, ein Torah. So after Rav David was part of the kolel for five years, he went to America. It was 1926. And uh, as he was fundraising, he was offered a position from a, a, a new yeshiva, there weren't many on the American scene at that time, but it was the yeshiva Torah Vedas, and they wanted to make Rav David Leibowitz their first Rosh Yeshiva. So he wasn't sure what to do. On one hand, that might sound like a prestigious position. You know, I could be a Rosh Yeshiva somewhere in America. However, understanding the, the, the scene, that the Torah world in America was a wasteland. There was nothing. There was, there was no deep-rooted sense of, of Mesorah. Most of the Jews who were here migrated to run away from Europe, to, want, to run away from that old-school shtetl life, and they wanted the American dream. So being offered the Rosh Hashiva position in Torah Vadas was not the, the highest level uh, position that he could have received. He actually had a different Rosh Hashiva spot waiting for him back in Europe, very chashiv, that was Rosh Hashiva in Warsaw, and he didn't know what to do. So he sent a telegram to his great uncle, the Chafetz Chaim, and the Chafetz Chaim sent back in his famous instructions to his great nephew, Rabbi David, you've learned Torah, and now it's time to be a Marbitz Torah. Go and spread the Torah. Even though likely you're going to be losing out on your own learning, on what you could be accomplishing coming back here to Europe, but I feel for the benefit of Klal Yisrael, said the Chafetz Chaim, your tafkid, your mission is to stay and try to build Torah on the shores of America. And that's what he did. He became a Shashiva in Torah Vedas, and he was there for five, six years or so, and then they had a parting of ways, and that's a whole conversation unto itself. 
But Rav David left the yeshiva, and he started his own yeshiva. 1933 is when he created the yeshiva named after his great uncle, the Chafetz Chaim, and AKA the Chafetz Chaim Yeshiva. Started in Brooklyn in South 9th Street, and the beginning years of the yeshiva, it was very difficult. You could imagine from a financial standpoint, the economy in America was devastated. The idea of anyone devoting their, their years after high school to full-time learning was unheard of. And what he was trying to do it was, it was somehow recreate the European yeshiva experience in a whole different universe. And therefore, there were many naysayers. Many people thought that he was a dreamer. It was something so above and beyond anything that would be realistic to accomplish. But Rabbi David had two major things. He had a belief in the power of Torah, and he had a belief in the power of the neshama. And although people were telling him, even great people, that the American Bachrim, the young men in America, growing up on baseball and television and who knows what other Narishkeit, to get them to come and sit and learn and devote years to Torah, it's not going to happen, right? Get out of the dream world. But Rav David indeed was a dreamer and he was committed to this vision. 1941, tragically, after a couple years of being ill, he had a massive heart attack and he passed away and his son, Rav Hanach Leibowitz at the time was only 24 and he took over the yeshiva. What I'd like to do is focus on five aspects of his life, not from a chronological perspective, but more conceptually. Five ideals that he really lived for and taught to his Talmidim. The first one was his vision and his personality of truth that was anchored in a, an extremely solid foundation of bitachon. He was a man who lived and breathed the mantra of, I know Hashem is running the world. I don't have to stress out about what tomorrow is going to bring. Eino milvado, it's all Hashem. Second aspect I'd like to focus on briefly is his love and respect for his own students, his belief in his Talmidim, being able to really be a true leader in the sense where he wasn't creating followers, but he was creating future leaders of Klal Yisrael. The third aspect I'd like to touch upon as well is his interest, his appreciation, and his curiosity for everything in Torah, but also everything in life itself. The world around him, the, the, the depth of humanity, psychologically, emotionally, spiritually, there was this, this unquenchable thirst of always wanting to know more about everything. And this was very much being a child of Slobodka. And Slobodka, they used to say that the greatest sin is katnus, is being small-minded. Rav David was the exact opposite of katnus. He was very broad. Very broad, but at the same time, with his natural creativity and brilliance, he had this, this diligence and this patience for being omel b'Torah, for toiling in Torah. When he would learn, he wouldn't just sit there with the sefer open, he would be schwitzing, he'd be sweating. The Rosh Hashiva, his son, used to say that I remember even as a, as a young boy, 
when my father was giving shear and he was going through the background and setting up the different shittas, the different opinions, and as he was getting closer to that breakthrough novel approach to explain everything, you could see the sweat dripping down his face. And it wasn't in Boca. <laughs> That's not a Kiddush. That makes sense if you're sweating here in Boca. But it was in the middle of freezing Europe. He'd be schwitzing. That was his Amelis Batorah, but it wasn't to show off his brilliance. It wasn't to, to demonstrate how he could make 47 connections and say different things off the cuff and impress the masses, but it was just trying to break through inside out. What is the text conveying to us? What is the Gemara saying? What is Rashi saying? An appreciation of what's called the Omik Hapshat, which really means the depth of simplicity. That was the Mahalach, that was the, uh, the methodology of Reb David in his learning. And last but not least was his total devotion, Mesirus, which means giving over of himself to his Mesorah, to his tradition, to his legacy. Always trying to keep in mind, what would my Rebbe, the author of Slabatka, do in this situation? So although he was creative, although he was brilliant, his diligence in Torah was, I want to understand what's happening here, not to insert my own ideas, and his feeling of, of, of responsibility to carry on that life and that vibrancy of Torah and Musa that he received in Europe, and try his best to bring that to America. We have in the, uh, the Parsha, where Lovin and Yaakov make a treaty, and it says that afterwards, Lovin gives his children a kiss. He gives them a bracha, and then he goes back to his place. Yaakov went to his place. And he was encountered by angels of God. So Ramosha Feinstein is bothered by an interesting question. He says that the Torah needs to, to let us know that Lovin went back to his place because he hated Yaakov. But it's, it's revealing to us that he was keeping his promise, he was keeping his end of the deal, and he went back home. But why does it have to say that Yaakov halach ladarko, that Yaakov continued going on his road? He was commanded by God to go home, and that's where he was obviously continuing to go. What's the Torah teaching us with that one phrase, the Yaakov Halach Ladarko? Says Ramosha Feinstein. Sha'afshi Yaakov Osik Bahalicha Ladarko, that even though Yaakov was involved with this trip, and there's a lot of hassle and a lot of tirdos, and he has a lot of wives and children and animals and people that are all under his domain. You think of taking one road trip with a couple of kids in the back seat and you're driving with air conditioning and you have music and it's far from simple to do that. So can you imagine Yaakov Avinu traveling with, with four wives and a lot of children and a lot of baggage? Did you bring the formula? I thought you told the Rachel to do that. No, it was Leia. Right? So that, that itself was a tremendous hassle. But with all of that, explains Ramosha Feinstein, that when the Torah says, V'yakov halach ledarko, it's telling us in Kolzeh that although there was so much going on, 
and the fear and the anxiety he had to meet his brother Esau, who he assumed didn't like him that much. With all of that going on, and a feeling of trust and faith in Hashem. The Yaakov Halach Ladarko is not describing where he went, but it's telling us how he got there. The mindset of Yaakov was, I have a sense of serenity because I know HaKadosh Baruch Hu was with me. Rosh Hashiva, Rav Hanach used to say about his father, that no matter what was going on, and there are times in yeshiva where they couldn't afford food, and there were times where they weren't really getting any talmidim, and it looked like the yeshiva might close down. Rabdavin never said, what's going to be? How are we going to survive? He never said those words. It was always with a sense of manucha, with a sense of joy, because really in Rabdavid's mind, it wasn't about making sure that he had a yeshiva. And this is so hard for the American mind to understand and to really implement into our own lives. It wasn't about my yeshiva. It was about doing the will of God. Right now, based on the instructions I received from my great uncle, the Chafetz Chaim, I feel with a sense of conviction that my mission here is to try to build Torah. And if I fail, okay, I tried. And if I have to be a plumber because the yeshiva is not working out, I'll learn how to be a plumber. It's not about me. It's not about my institution. It's not about being the biggest or the greatest or the most famous. I'm just doing the Ratzon Hashem. That was the mantra, that was the mindset of David Leibowitz. There's an amazing uh, paragraph by the Rebbeinu Bachai in the beginning of the Parsha where he describes what does it mean to be an Ish Yashar, someone who's straight, someone who's, who's correct in how they view the world and how they behave. The last two lines of source number three, he says, V'yadu'a ki hayashahu, the definition of, of a person who's a Yashar, is ha-makir hayosher, it's one who recognizes that which is true, Oso, and not only am I aware of the truth, but I love the truth. and I choose to pursue the truth. I recognize it, I love it, and therefore, no matter how difficult it can, it can be, Bocherbo, I'm going to choose to go in the direction of the truth. And I'm willing to go through any difficulty. If this is what my value system is pointing me to, even though I might go through terrible suffering because of this, I might lose my job because of this, they may not respect me anymore because of this. These words are so incredibly powerful. The person who lives with a sense of yashrus, of doing the right thing, is one who is nichna el ha'emis. I humble myself before the truth. It may not be convenient. It may not be what I want to hear. It, it may not be the best for my own institution or for my own mission. But if I feel this is what Hashem wants, I'm doing it, and I'm doing it without question. There's a famous story 
And it's been told for many years that in the beginning days of the yeshiva, so there is a cook. And the cook was uh, not, not first class. And it sounds like he was very dirty. And the Bachrim, the young men in the yeshiva, would always be complaining to Rav David, the food is sparse, we're not eating enough, and whatever he's serving us is just disgusting. <laughs> right? It's pretty rough. People think that yeshivas nowadays, you know, it's so rough, I have to go out and get a hamburger because I can't eat the pasta. We can't even fathom what these boys were eating. So they were complaining, and Rodavid tried to, to work on things, tried to make things better. I'm sure he had conversations with the particular cook. Nothing helped. It got down to the point where these young men basically had to threaten Rodavid Leibowitz. And they said, Rebbe, we're sorry to say, there are other options right now in America. There is the Yeshiva Torah Vadas that you left. We're willing to go elsewhere, and we will go elsewhere unless you fire the cook. That's really our ultimatum. So Rav David thought about it. And in his Das Torah, in his understanding as to what the Yashris would be, what the right thing would be, he knew that by firing the cook during the Depression, the odds of him getting another job with enough time to actually put bread on his table were very slim. And therefore his psak was, I'm not going to fire the cook. So you might leave, and we might close the yeshiva. That would be a bummer. That would be a bummer. That's an exact quote from Reb David. That would be a bummer. He said that in Yiddish. But that was the hashkafa. It is what it is. You got into the right thing. Sometimes we get so enamored, so intoxicated by the wonderful things we're trying to accomplish. If I have to step on you along the way or push this person aside or cut corners over here, but I'm doing everything for the sake of heaven. You're doing everything for the sake of yourself. Rav David had that clarity. The Rosh Hashiva used to say about his father that he was besimcha. Now it's interesting, the pictures you see, and the pictures we have here, he doesn't seem to be besimcha, but, it, but his attitude was, he was happy, he was content. I'm not sure that he was jovial, but he was satisfied, he was content, he was besimcha with his life. And the Rosh Hashiva said that he actually saw other gedolim, other great Torah giants, who in learning were massive, but they didn't share that same joy because of their experience in America. The American scene brought them down because there was no appreciation for Torah and there was no appreciation for you as a gadol Torah, as someone who's accomplished in Torah, and that was hard to live with. You're coming from a, a rich Torah society back in Europe, and now you're in the Midbar, you're in a wasteland where people don't appreciate what you have to offer. He said, my father was besimcha because he would continue to learn Musr. He would continue to remind himself, what am I doing in this world? It's not about accomplishment and success as it's painted in the American world. It's about trying to do my best to fulfill the will of God. And if I'm doing that, then I'm okay. There's an amazing line of the Rambam. Usually when we have the title of tzaddik, the righteous one, 
and we think of somebody in the Torah, who do we associate that word with? Yosef, Yosef HaTzadik. The Rambam says, he uses that exact title for Yaakov. Why does he call Yaakov HaTzadik? So he says in the very end of Sechiris, where he speaks about all of the laws pertaining to an employer and an employee, he says, just like the employer has to be careful to be very honest and straightforward with all of his workers, the same thing is true with the workers themselves. Don't take off time. Don't, uh, don't cut corners. And he says to the contrary, you have to work as hard as you possibly can because you're getting paid for this. You can't slack off. You have to work with all of your energy. Because Yaakov the righteous, Amar, he told his wives, with all of my strength, I served your father. So even though Lavan, we know, was totally immoral and he was a liar and he was a cheater and he was trying to totally rip him off, Yaakov said, with all of my strength, I have served your father with loyalty, with erlichkeit, with honesty and integrity. Says the Rambam, that is what makes you a tzaddik. Now it doesn't just mean it's not limited to being careful or meticulous in, in monetary issues, but the truth is it's really defining or describing one's whole personality. Uh, there's an amazing piece in the Taurus of Ram, the Taurus of Ram, was the Mashkiach of Slobodka. And he writes that when we think of someone living truthfully, we often think of it in a very superficial way. It's someone who's not telling a lie, someone who's being honest in business, and that's all true. But those are all manifestations of something much deeper. He says, we see ha'omik betores emis. There's so much depth when it comes to defining someone who's truthful. He explains, If what I'm doing, if how I'm living, if the words that I'm saying are not coming from the depth of my soul, then even if I'm saying something that's officially true, I'm lying because I'm not being authentic. Truth is not determined based on what's being said. It's based on who's saying it. It's based on where is it coming from. Is it emanating from a deep place of, of reality within me? Or is it superficial and it's somewhat a conflict to who I really am? And then he says an amazing line. sure it's possible... You could have two people who are saying the exact same thing. And they're doing the exact same thing. They behave in the exact same way. But for one person, it's truth. And for the other person, it's sheker. It's a lie. Because it's not really who they are. So the idea of the Rambam calling Yaakov, Yaakov had tzaddik because he was so meticulous in his dealings with Lavan, it wasn't just because he didn't cheat on his taxes, it wasn't just because he tried to follow through with all of the agreements that they made, it was the taich, it was the definition of who Yaakov was. He was a living ish emes, he was a man of truth. The, uh, the stipler 
know, the Stipler Gon and Rav Shach were very close. And there was one time where there was a whole discussion with the Moetzis, Gedolei HaTorah, really the leaders of the Torah community in Eretz Yisrael, as to a particular Knesset election. And both Rav Shach and the Stipler felt very strongly about a particular issue, and they voiced their opinion, and they made it known to the other Gedolim, the other Torah leaders, what they thought should be done. And it turns out that they weren't listened to. And they ruled against them. So both the Stipler and Rav Shach were very disappointed because they thought that was not the right move for the future of the Jewish people. The Stipler, though, was a little concerned knowing the personality of his good friend Rav Shach, who was known as really the leader of the generation. He was concerned, how is he doing? So he was speaking with another friend and he was asking him, how's, how's Rav Shach? And the response was, He's devastated. His spirits are broken. He's basically expressing that he's going to have a hard time pushing forward to continue all of his responsibilities when he feels that all of our efforts were in vain. So the stipler hearing this, he said, send Rav Shach a message. Please tell him, coming from me personally, that when Avram Avinu was davening that Hashem should save the cities of Stone Vemora. And he was bargaining, he was negotiating with Hashem, and finally they couldn't even get ten righteous people. So at that point the Torah says, Hashem Avram, that Hashem left after his discussion with Avram, Avram Shav Limkomo. Similar to the verse we read regarding Yaakov, that Yaakov kept on his derech. It says, Avram shav limkomo, he went back to his place. So the stipler said, what does that mean that Avram went back to his place? What the Torah is telling us is that if you could really picture how devastated Avram Avinu was, he was davening to save these cities and he was negotiating, he was pleading and he was crying and he was begging Hashem, and ultimately the answer was, sorry, gotta run, nice conversation, atzlach in the future. Vavram shav limkomo, he didn't give up, he went back to his place, and he kept on working and he kept on pushing on behalf of the future of humanity. So Stipler says, please send this message to Rav Shach. He says, sometimes in life, when we try our best, and even when we're putting everything in and all of the effort is there, and for some reason HaKadosh Baruch Hu doesn't allow it to go through, I've been working so hard on this deal, and I was this close to making enough money that would help me and my family for the next eight months, and it fell through. I was so close on getting to the next step of whatever my mission or endeavor was, and it didn't come to fruition said the stipler, then we have to implore, we have to bring back that feeling of Avram, Shav, Livkomo. My job is not to accomplish, my job is to try my best to accomplish, and that's the definition of success in the Torah view. That was how Rav David lived, that's how he stayed sane, and that was really the message that he shared with his Talmidim and with all of us. What is the true definition of success? share with you here, this is an article from the Jewish Observer going back to 1991 
This was commemorating the 50th yard site of Reb David Leibowitz. Share with you a couple of lines because based on his whole worldview, you could imagine the institutions that he was a part of in the, in the founding of the Kovna Kolel back in Europe and then the establishing of the yeshiva here in America. It was with a particular goal. This is uh, source number seven. Reb David insisted to his friends that the Kolel was not established to train poskim, rabbanim, and rosh yeshiva. He rallied against scholars whose main interest was in their rabbinic career. He said this attitude had contributed to the destruction of Torah. When it's too much of a focus on the career and not enough of a focus on what are we doing here, what are we trying to actually help Klal Yisrael with, that could bring down Torah and not raise it up. He said the case in point is that when he was offered a position Torah Vedas in America, so he was willing to turn down something much greater for his career because I think I could do more, I could help people, I could influence people in a more unique way. There's a letter that Reb David Leibowitz wrote when he was trying to set forth the goal of the Kolel back in Europe. And he writes... It would be inaccurate if I was to say that the point of this institution is to create rabbis and to create heads of yeshiva. He says, obviously, we need those people. We need teachers. We need rebellion in all capacity. However, that would be limiting the goal of what this kolel is doing. I'm not promising anyone who joins the Kolel that this will help you in the future for your career. And, in all reality, it might make it harder to make a good parnas in the future. However, he says, the goal of the Kolel is very straightforward. Ha-Kolel Yehudim Gedolim Our goal is to produce Yehudim Gedolim great Jews. That's our goal. People who will be so steeped in learning that they could, they could incorporate within themselves some of the truth and the light of Torah and then eventually change the world to whatever their capacity is. Can't promise you any position, but the goal here is to create Yehudim Gedolim. Now how did he do that himself? Right, the love and respect, this is the second aspect that he had for his own Talmidim, was something that was extremely unique at the time. And even looking back in hindsight, where Baruch Hashem, we live in a world where we understand the needs of the students and the emotional struggles that everyone has. But learning from Reb David's approach can really bring us uh, much farther in this whole pursuit. There's a letter here going back to 1989 that was written by Reb Moshe Chait. Reb Moshe Chait was one of the students of Reb David Leibowitz. I was Zoha to be in the yeshiva in Eretz Yisrael when Reb Moshe Chait was still giving shmuzin. He would give a, a speech once a week. So he writes here about his own personal experience with Reb David Leibowitz. And he says, the one thing that stands out to me almost more than anything else is Ha'ava Ha'aza, that super powerful love that he had for Torah 
and for those who learn Torah, and especially his own students. There was a love that was not expressed in words. It doesn't sound like he was very emotional in a verbal sense, but everyone knew how much he cared for you and how much he loved you. And it was regardless of how well that particular student was doing. It wasn't that, well, he's asking the best questions in the class, or he's showing real promise to be something great in the future. Therefore, I'm going to show you a little bit more love, a little bit more of a connection. That meant nothing to Reb David. I love you and I respect you because I see you and I appreciate you. And everybody felt that. He said, you could see it in his eyes, the gaze in his eyes when he would look at you. You could feel the love, you could feel the respect, you could feel the fact that he believed in you. We have at the end of the Parsha as well, during that treaty with Yaakov and Lavan. So when they're making the monument, Yaakov says, I knew that would happen at some point, the watch just fell. But we'll try to keep time in our head, it's okay. Yaakov says to his, his son, he calls his sons his brothers. He says, my brothers, let's gather stones together and, and create this monument. And they did so. Rashi's bothered by the question, it's not going to stay most likely. I won't move around that much. Rashi's bothered by the question, why would he call his sons his brothers? They weren't his brothers. So explains Rashi famously, he was treating them almost as equals. He was saying, I respect you because we've been through so much together, through thick and thin, through milchama, through battle. You've been there for me and I've been there for you. I want you to help me, not as my children, not as people who are just obeying my command. The Nitziv explains, he expands upon Rashi, he says the goal of Yaakov in calling his sons brothers was to let them know, I want you to join me in this because it's meaningful for me and I want it to be meaningful for you. Don't do it just because I told you to. And that was really the entire educational philosophy of Rabdava Leibowitz. There was a famous distinction that was made in the yeshiva in Slobotka. How do you become a real student? How do you become a Talmud? So the goal was to be a Talmud besiyata derav, which means I'm a student with the assistance of my Rebbe, but not to be a Talmud brishus derav, which means I'm a disciple under the subjugation of my Rebbe, and I lose my identity. I had a conversation recently. A young couple is dating, and one of the, uh, one of the concerns that she had just in different conversations with him, is the fact that he, he mentions often about speaking to his rabbi and asking questions. And on one hand, she was saying, I think that's very noble. I want a husband who, who will ask questions. But on the other hand, I, I want him to be his own man. I want him to be able to make decisions for himself and take ownership over his life. To be a Talmud Bisiyata de Rav means I'm looking for guidance from you who I trust and I love and I feel your love and respect for me that you could help me be the best me. Not that I'm going to pretend to be you. 
That's a student or a disciple with the assistance of his Rebbe, not under the control of his Rebbe. And that's what Rabbi David would promote. We're not creating followers, we're creating future leaders. The respect for the Talmud's point of view, hearing him out carefully, grappling with his question, pointing out his mistakes, and helping him come to the right conclusion, that was all part of the process of learning. The point was, Rav David was not trying to just share his own chidushim, his own ideas. Look at how incredible this shot is. I want to share it with you. His main goal was, I want to help you get as deep as possible so when you leave the no matter what you want in the future, you want to be a doctor or a lawyer or a rebbe or whatever, you have the tools to be able to decipher something yourself and there's no greater joy than being able to learn and, and get to this truth on your own. The respect for each individual student was not just an educational strategy, it was part of his being, it was part of his legacy from Slobodka. The third aspect here was his own his interest, his appreciation, and his curiosity in all aspects of life, not just Torah, but in everything in life. There was a student of Rabbi David that shared that they were walking together and there was a guy changing a, a tire on a car. And he would assume that his great Rebbe would have no interest whatsoever in seeing someone change a tire. But to his surprise, Rabbi David stopped and he was analyzing and looking closely and trying to figure out what exactly he was doing. Reb David would take pride that on his own smicha, on his, uh, his uh, rabbinic, um, what's a good translation? Ordination, right, the plaque that he had. So Rav Moshe Mordechai Epstein, known as the Levush Mordechai, the Rosh Hashiv in Slabatka, he wrote something special for Reb David. Right? Not only is he walking away knowing the halachas that one needs to know to, to be a rav, to be a posek, to be a rosh shiva, but he also wrote, Yeshlo chachma nifla b'mili da'alma, that he, Reb David, has an awesome wisdom in worldly matters. That was something that was respected. He wasn't bitsimsum, it wasn't just living in a box, in a little bubble, but he had an interest and he had an understanding, a deep understanding of kochos and nefesh, of the way a human being works, and how he thinks, and therefore how he himself could be helpful and inspiring to others. The Mishnah tells us that one of the, uh, the five central midos is to be roa es hanolad, is to be able to see the future, to see the ramifications of our actions and our conversation. So the Tosvos Yantov, who was one of the, the great disciples of the Maral, he says, don't think this ability or this quality of roa es enolat, of seeing what will come from this, from this present, how it impacts the future, don't think that's limited to Torah learning or Torah study or Torah teaching. Says the Tosos Yontif, this is referring to every single thing we do in life. Because there's no way to compartmentalize my way of thinking. 
There's no way to say that while I'm focusing on Torah and spirituality, then I'm going to think out of the box and I'm going to be creative. But other aspects of my life, that I'm not going to try too hard. That I'm not going to really think through all of the steps. It doesn't work like that. You have to be open in, in everything you do in order to have that broadness when it comes to Torah and spirituality as well. This is why often there would be questions. You have young men in yeshiva and they'd be going to college at the same time. So if a, if a guy is pretty smart, he could get by. Depends how many credits he's getting, how many courses he's taking. I just had recently, I was in touch, texting back and forth with a college student. And we were trying to figure out what would be a good time to meet. So he texted me back. I don't have class Monday and Wednesdays. However, I do have class Tuesday and Thursday until 11 a.m. <laughs> so I'm thinking to myself, this is incredible. <laughs> Can you imagine a schedule like that? I'm off Monday, Wednesday, and Tuesday, Thursday, I have a class for a couple hours in the morning. I'm sure I have some homework here and there. The higher education in America is astounding, right? But people would ask Rav Pam. Rav Pam was one of the Talmidim of Rav David Leibowitz. So what should I do? Should I just try to you know, go to class, space out a little bit, get myself a passing grade, so I'll be okay, I'll make my parents happy, and I'll still get through college? Or should I try hard and, and do well? That doesn't mean I have to spend hours and hours of my time to make sure I get an A+, but should I really be focused? And Rav Palm's advice was always, and also we find this from Yaakov Kamenetsky, all coming back to that same kernel of Slobodka, the advice was always you have to try hard. You have to try hard. Because if you're spacing out in biology, and you're spacing out in English, and you're not really applying yourself to any of these other secular areas of life, it will have an impact on how you think in the Tosvos, and how you analyze a Rashi. The way we think in every area in life has a direct hashpa and influence on how we think when it comes to spirituality. And this article here in the Jewish Observer, he goes on to say that Reb David would try to teach his students how to be perceptive, to try to show them that there's so much more than black and white, but there are many, many shades of gray. He would take them sometimes to rabbinic conventions to hear speakers, and then he would ask questions to his students. So what do you think he really had in mind? What do you think their agenda was over there? Why do you think they're talking about this particular topic right now? What's going on behind the scenes? Reb David taught his students to see countless shades of gray. He taught them to see a bit of the good, even in the bad. And he was not afraid to point out the flaws in what was generally perceived as good. Don't live in this naive fog of just seeing the superficial. You have to see more than meets the eye. He was training his students on how to be pikeach, how to be open, how to be interested, and how to be curious. The fourth aspect of Rav David was his toiling in Torah, his whole approach and methodology to Torah learning. The great Rav Ram Pam, when he spoke at the funeral of Rav David in 1941, which is a, a beautiful hespid, it's a eulogy that's really a must-read. Mr. Shem, I could give a copy to those who would like. 
I have one in my, my files. But there's one line where he was describing the personality of Rabbi David, and he said to be a lamdin, right, to be one who could really break through in learning and get deep, was an ideal he consistently glorified. To acquire a Torah outlook was the greatest of achievements. To be a lamdin, to be able to learn well. Why was that so important? Obviously, learning is the greatest mitzvah we could do. But in Reb David's view, and again, this is coming from his exposure to the Chafetz Chaim, from the Talitrap, the altar of Slabotka, it wasn't just when you're learning well or you're learning with sweat and tears that you're actually doing a better mitzvah, but it changes who you are forever. It transforms you into a human being that sees the world differently. And oftentimes, people will ask the question, why are you learning about this particular subject? It doesn't seem relevant. We don't have oxen nowadays. We actually do, but we don't live around them, so they're not as relevant to me. So obviously, there's a lot to be said on that topic that could be a whole discussion unto itself, but the realization of the Torah learning when it's done ba'amkus, when it's done with the depth, and the Ramchal says this idea in a few places, that transforms the human being, that uplifts us, that takes us above and beyond any physical limitation. Learning with effort. There's an amazing Gemara that's been quoted many times in the yeshiva. A Gemara in Baba Kama, where it says there was a particular person, Eliezer Zeira, who was caught wearing black shoelaces. Right, a chutzpah. He was caught wearing black shoelaces. So uh, it seems like that was not the custom in those days. So they approached him, and they were asking questions. Other Jews, who do you think you are wearing black shoelaces? And his response was, I'm doing this as an expression of mourning for Jerusalem. Because the temple lays in ruins, I'm wearing black shoelaces. And they said back, Who do you think you are to mourn for Jerusalem like that? You think you're that great of a person? You think you're of the stature to mourn in a way where you're showing off that, that you're holy enough to really feel the pain of the destruction? You think you're a Gavra Rabbah? You think you're a great person? And they threw him in jail. Right? How about that? I was just at my, uh, my monthly Boca Raton chaplain meeting. And they were sharing with us there was a whole protest because the, the, the private jails versus public jails, it's a whole thing. But they threw him in jail for wearing black shoelaces and they thought it was Mechsi Kiyura. It looked like he was being arrogant. So then he had to defend himself. Eliezer Zeira said, No, I'm not pretending to be a great person. I am a great person. I said, Oh yeah? Prove it to us. So he said back with confidence, No problem. How do you want to do this? Do you want to ask me a question and I'll answer it? Should I ask you a question and you'll try to answer it? You just tell me what the game is and I'll play it. So they had a whole back and forth, and then eventually he proved that indeed he was a Talmud Chacham, he was a Torah scholar, and they said, okay, we'll let you out this time. You're allowed to wear black shoelaces. 
Kind of a strange Gemara, right? If they thought that he was being arrogant by his mode of dress, and they thought it wasn't real, they thought he was showing off or pretending to be something he wasn't. So if anything, you were to ask him, I would have thought, ask him, prove your sincerity in your feelings for Jerusalem. Can you prove your level of emotion to warrant you being able to wear that kind of shoelace? But they didn't ask anything about his emotions, his feelings, his psychological state. The only question is, how big of a lamdin are you? How sharp are you? How well can you learn? What does that have to do with being able to mourn over Yerushalayim? So we see an incredible idea from this Gemara. The deeper I'm able to be in my Torah analysis, the more I'm able to delve into the, the deepest recesses of Torah, it's not just maybe I'll know it better or maybe it's a more powerful mitzvah because I'm trying harder. That gives me the ability and the capacity to feel more. I can now mourn over Yerushalayim in a deeper way because I know how to learn with more sincerity. So in the world of Rabdavid Leibowitz, the goal of being a Lamdin, being one who could really get into Torah, it wasn't just for the mitzvah of learning, it was for changing and transforming the entire person. And the last thing we'll end with this, was that although he was brilliant and creative, he was mitzamtseim, he was able to limit himself and stay totally devoted to the legacy and the mesora that he received from his own rebellion. The Chazon Ish writes in one of his letters that, this is source number 18, when you're trying to grow in Torah, you're trying to broaden your horizons. Iker aliyah lahovin das hanigud tomid. The greatest way to elevate yourself in Torah is by trying to understand an opinion that doesn't make sense to you. If I'm willing to work on what you're saying, although it doesn't resonate as true, so that means I could actually transform the way I'm thinking. And I could see the Torah in a different light. One of the goals, one of the, the main reasons we have such an obsession with Mesorah, with tradition, with the legacy, with our Rebbeim, is not to limit creativity, but it's to give us the tools in how to actually decipher, how to bring out something true from a chazal. When it comes to Torah learning, ladies and gentlemen, we have to be connoisseurs. There's a lot of Torah out there that's accessible, Baruch Hashem. But there's Torah and there's Torah. Reb David was teaching that Torah learning needs to be real, inside out. What's actually being said? Not just zugging, not just saying ideas, not just showing off different sources that I have that could potentially go together, and once you think about it for 20 more seconds, you realize that doesn't seem to make so much sense. Torah's got to be real also. We have to be connoisseurs. So the idea of working on someone else who I feel probably has a better grasp of this area, of this idea, of this concept than I do, and being able to pace on something that's the way we actually broaden our horizons in learning. We have a similar idea that was mentioned by Rav Shimon Shkup. Rav Shimon Shkup 
also one of the great minds in Europe. In his introduction to his Sefer that is extremely deep, the Shar Yosher, he says, as you, grow, as you go through my work, you may have questions. And what I'm writing here is not at all simple. And if you're going to go through it superficially, likely you will not understand what I'm saying. But do me and do yourself a favor. Don't just write it off. Think about it deeply. Because it could very well be, if I'm saying something that doesn't make sense to you, that could give you a new clarity you never had before, if you're willing, if you're patient enough to work on it. And he goes on to say, that's why in the Gemara sometimes we'll find, before one Amora would teach something to, a, to another Amora, he would ask him, do me a favor, can you please fold my scarf? Can you please do me something? Right? Bring me a cup of water. Why are you asking for a favor? The person wants to learn something, teach him something. So Shimon Shkup quotes his brother-in-law who said, because in order for anybody to be able to really learn from somebody else, the first step is I have to respect you. I have to respect that what you're saying is based on thought, is based on experience, and then I'm willing to work on something even if it doesn't make sense at first glance. So part of the richness of the Misora is trying to bend our mind into a deeper, into a vaster reality than we ourselves would ever come up with. So when the Medavid was 52 years old and he had the heart attack, he was in the ambulance together with his son, Reb Hanech Leibowitz. And the last words that came out of his mouth was, my Rebbe, the altar, my Rebbe, the altar of Slobodka. The last word he ever said was mentioning and thinking about his Rebbe, thinking about his connection to the previous generation. So we have here, this is only a glimpse, and obviously the take home can be endless in so many areas of life, of teaching, of inspiring ourselves, of inspiring others. But the vision of personality, of truth, that we had that solid bedrock in Bitachon, being able to look past the glitz and the glamour of what's considered a real accomplishment and feeling a sense of joy. As long as I'm doing everything I can, I'm fulfilling my, my mitzvah, my mission, that itself will make me a happy person. Loving and respecting Talmidim, people who are growing with us together, children, disciples at any level, believing in them and not trying to make followers, but trying to create leaders of the future. Always having a Roa Esa Nolad approach to everything. In relationships, I'm trying to see past this. What's going to be? What are the ramifications? In everything in life, even in the secular and the mundane, because that enhances everything I do within the spiritual. A Melis in Torah, working and toiling in Torah to the most that we possibly can. The phrase is, Ad Shayado Magas, until my hand could reach. That transforms us in everything we do and how we view ourselves and the world around us. And the fifth aspect that we discussed tonight is a total dedication to Misora. Not to cut off creativity, not to, to narrow our vision, but to be able to expand our horizons through trying to bend our mind to those who are greater and those who have more experience. We should be Zoha to take some of these lessons from the life and legacy of Rabbi Leibowitz, and we should be able to have a sense of gratitude. So much of what's happening right here in Florida, right here in Boca Raton, 
with many, many different Torah institutions and many rabbis and moros and teachers in all capacity and really throughout the world, they are all a direct result of the vision and the belief and the faith of one man.